Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Hack Your Gut Podcast. This is episode 13, and today we have a bit of an aging-centric episode. Now, one of the reasons I got into circadian rhythms and gut health is because I think they're incredibly important for the aging process, and vice versa as well. As we get older, we're generally going to see a decline in both our gut health and our uh, circadian rhythms, which is going to impact our overall health. So today we're going to discuss a couple aspects of the aging process. We're going to begin with a discussion on DNA methylation as a way of predicting biological age. We're going to talk about the epigenetic clock, which is how we predict age based off of DNA methylation. We're also going to discuss epigenetic drift, which is the way that our epigenome changes as we get older and how this can actually promote age-related diseases. And we're also going to talk a little bit of how, about how this information that we're getting on DNA methylation and epigenetic drift not only help us kind of develop biomarkers for biological aging, but they also give us a target that we have to hit in order to improve aging. In other words, uh, epigenetic drift and uh, the ticking of the epigenetic clock is something we're going to have to address if we want to promote healthy aging. Then we're going to move on to senescent cells and tissue function, another aspect of aging. Senescent cells are a type of cell that accumulate with age in various tissues. And what's interesting about this is they don't accumulate in very large numbers, but an increase in senescent cells of about 1% can cause any sort of tissue or organ to age more rapidly due to what is called inflammaging, but you probably know better as the you know in, increase in inflammation that comes with age. Then we're going to move on to the skin-gut connection, but we're going to discuss that kind of flip-flopped compared to the way most people discuss it. A lot of people think gut health is really important for skin health, which is true, but it goes the other way too. And if you have poor skin health, that can actually impact gut health. And finally, we're going to discuss a study that was published earlier this year, basically showing that blocking blue light at night and, you know, uh, green light as well, may not be the only thing we need to do to kind of conquer our lighting environment. It may be just as important the switch in colors that happen throughout the day. And ironically, wearing blue blockers with, you know, having multiple lights on your house actually may disrupt circadian rhythms. And it doesn't do this by affecting melatonin production. It works through a completely different receptor. So those are our topics. So let's jump on in with DNA methylation age, epigenetic drift, and the epigenetic clock. So as we age, there are a number of things that change in our body. And as we grow older, we see we begin to break get, break down, things begin to hurt, we lose muscle mass, we lose bone density, you know, our, our immune system doesn't work as well, you know, our, our, our brain doesn't work as well. And so when we look at all of that that happens, there are underlying factors that drive these disease processes or these, these kind of declines in function such as DNA damage, we get accumulation of damage to our nuclear and mitochondrial DNA, our telomeres shorten, uh, we lose stem cell, our stem cell pools become depleted, uh, we experience mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, kind of junk proteins build up inside our cells and kind of manipulate their function. But one thing that most people aren't aware of is that there is an, a change in the way that our epigenome works as we age. So in other words, our genes 
the way they're expressed when they're young are expressed differently as we get older. And this is something we can actually use to kind, you know, kind of estimate chronological age. It's it's a very good measure of time because as time goes by, these changes just follow a, a very coordinated pattern. And so this change with age is often referred to as the epigenetic clock. Now, the actual change in the way the epigenome works is called epigenetic drift. And so basically this clock can speed up or slow down and it's different for everybody. And there are some factors that will speed it up in an individual. Um, and the way we look at that is we look at the way that our epigenome changes as we age. Now there are essentially two primary epigenetic modifications. There are histone modifications and DNA methylation. Now, DNA methylation is what most of the current uh, epigenetic clock predictors of chronological age use. Uh, we use these DNA methylation patterns as the epigenetic clock, and that DNA methylation age can identify your ticking rate, whether you have a fast epigenetic clock and therefore are going to age more rapidly, or you have a slower clock, which will mean you will remain more youthful for a longer period of time. Now, this is highly genetic, but we are learning that there are factors in life that are really important for making sure the clock ticks at a decent speed. Uh, you, in the email, I'll, I'll kind of post an image and a study that shows the factors. Uh, for example, exercise slows down the clock, um, uh, stress speeds it up, uh, eating a nutritious diet, getting adequate nutrition but not overeating uh, makes the clock click a little slower, uh, smoking speeds it up, having a high BMI speeds it up. But using this DNA methylation, we can kind of get an idea not only of how old we are specifically, but how factors that are very common in our society may drive age acceleration. So the thing about DNA methylation age, there is currently one that is accessible to the general public. Uh, you can get it at mydnh.com. Uh, M-Y-D-N-A-G-E dot com by Zythos. And this is modeled after Stephen Horvath's clock. So just to kind of give you an idea of how accurate and how correlated this epigenetic clock is to age, people often like to use uh, leukocyte telomeres as a method of kind of determining biological age. But the thing is, telomeres have a very poor correlation with aging. So uh, you use R is what a correlation is. Uh, telomeres correlation with age, their R is about 0.5, which isn't terrible. It shows there is a correlation. But this Horvath's clock, which uses 353 points on, on the epigenome, is 0.96. And a perfect correlation is 1.0. So as you can see, this clock is a much greater predictor of age. However, since it's so tightly correlated to chronological age, it may not be a great way of measuring biological age. Certainly, it's one of many factors. The, the factors that I, I mentioned earlier in ways of measuring that can also kind of give you data as well. But taking Horvath's clock, we can use that. It's great at predicting chronological age, and it's great at predicting 10-year all-cause mortality. And basically, that's just going to say, what is your risk of dying within the next 10 years? It's, and of course, your risk of dying in the next 10 years goes up as you become older. But there is a new test out there called PhenoAge. It's not commercially available, but the 
kind of the data set is and you can plug in any information. And so what PhenoAge does is it uses some of these DNA methylation markers as well as measures in blood. And this actually is even better at predicting 10-year mortality than Horvath's uh, DNA methylation age uh, using his epigenetic clock. But that's all great. You can go get that test to see what your uh, epigenetic age is. But what's even more interesting is what this data has shown us. Now, we're really digging into ways that we could potentially either slow down aging a lot or, you know, maybe get it as close to halting in the tracks as we can. Furthermore, there may be things that happen with aging that if we repair may have a rejuvenating effect on us uh, by, you know, perhaps increasing our stem cell pool sizes or increasing our telomere length. But in order to do that, we need to have data in humans. And the problem with doing that is humans live 80 years. So getting that data would be very difficult. So we need these good biomarkers of aging to see if the things that we do will actually either slow down the aging process or even potentially reverse it. But looking at these changes has kind of just opened our eyes to a lot of things that we didn't necessarily know we may have had some clue into. Uh, you know, like For example, we did know that the epigenome changed as we got older, and it even varies throughout life. But what we know now is that the ticking rate of the epigenetic clock varies between individuals, and even within the same individual at the developmental level, aka, you know, your first 20 years when you're in growth versus, you know, your next 60 years, which is aging, the, the clock ticks at, at different rates during those times, as well as in different organs and tissues. It, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, for example, female breast tissue ages more quickly than other tissues throughout the body. In the small intestine, during middle age, the clock actually begins ticking slower as it does in the cerebellum, although that's a little older, say, you know, 60 years old. But in, in middle age, the small intestine clock ticks a little slower, which would be good. You don't want to lose barrier function and you don't want to, you know, not be able to absorb your nutrients. So the small intestine slows down during middle age, whereas the colon just continues to age. And of course, there are multiple factors with this. The microbiome does play a role. Uh, nutrition plays a role. But having inflammation in your small intestine also can speed up the clock. So there are a lot of things we're learning about different tissues and organs uh, from this epigenetic clock that we didn't know before. And of course, you know, the, the big mover, we look at super centenarians who are living, you know, over 110 years old, they tick slower than, you know, regular old Joes who, you know, who die around 75 or 80. Additionally, when we look at diseases such as type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and Alzheimer's, these correlate with rapid ticking. In other words, chronic diseases of aging, people who experience those see a little more accelerated epigenetic clock, and those who get them earlier are likely seeing that clock tick even faster than someone who, say, gets Alzheimer's at the age of 80. Again, this is going to be tissue-specific as well. So you would expect somebody with type 2 diabetes to see changes in the epigenetic clock in their pancreas, muscle, adipose tissue, and liver. Whereas in Alzheimer's disease, you would expect to see it in the prefrontal cortex, which is the area of the brain where we see issues. As I mentioned slightly earlier with the small intestine, inflammation does increase the ticking rate. It speeds up the epigenetic clock. Uh, so things like consuming alcohol, you know, being overweight, smoking, et cetera, et cetera, poor sleep, anything that will generally increase inflammation um, will speed up the epigenetic clock. 
Now, when we're looking at trying to get an estimate of, say, you know, me, I'm Dave. Dave goes to, you know, Dave orders the DNA methylation, DNA aging test, the DNA methylation aging test. Uh, they either want blood or urine. Both are very accurate at predicting the organism's DNA methylation age, their, you know, their epigenetic clock. Um, obviously, you know, you and I aren't going to have access to this for our liver, uh, obviously you would not want to do a liver biopsy on yourself or your pancreas. Um, so we use blood and urine as a way of kind of seeing what the whole organism's uh, DNA methylation age or epigenetic age is. And, you know, of course, people who start to get problems in one organ, they're going to see an, an accelerated rate of aging because you would expect them to have enhanced all-cause mortality within the next 10 years. So kind of, you know, what's going on in, in your body and what you, your entire body's DNA methylation age is going to be dictated by how rapidly all your other organs and tissues are aging. But as I mentioned at the outset, it's important to understand that this is not the only driver of aging. It's a driver of aging, and it's definitely something that if we can manipulate, we can prolong life and prolong health span. So it's a really important thing that we're currently digging in. I, you know, uh, Horvath's clock came out around 2013, 2014, and I mean, and there, there are so many more clocks now, and there's just so much use uh, of this information to kind of dig into the mechanisms behind aging. What you're probably interested now in, do we have any evidence that we can either slow down the aging process or potentially even reverse it? So yes, in mice, for sure, we have seen this uh, in many different studies in lower organisms. Interestingly, we now have the ability to reprogram stem cells. Uh, so pluripotency means they can you know these stem cells can be basically anything we want them to become and if you can convert a, a regular old cell into a pluripotent stem cell you actually reset the epigenetic clock back now there are two human studies really important to point out that these two human studies are very very small so we need a lot more uh, the first looked at vitamin d in obese African-American men and using vitamin D and increasing the vitamin D levels in obese African-American men actually led to a, a, an almost three-year uh, reversal in epigenetic age. It was actually a two-year reversal, but the test was a year after the initial test, so that comes down to three. And that was uh, the reasoning behind that is vitamin D is actually important for the methylation process. So one of the important factors for regulating this is certainly going to be having adequate methylation. Uh, you, in order to have DNA methylation, you have to have adequate methyl groups and, and you have to have that methylation cycle working properly. This study showed in obese African-American men that potentially one of the things limiting them is, are, are those methylation pathways. And by be, making them vitamin D sufficient, it actually makes their clock tick at a better rate. There was another study that was recently published. It was, um, it was basically the thymus is a, a part of the immune system and the, the thymus gland shrinks with age. This is where your T cells are programmed to go you know, kill, kill cells that are infected with viruses and things of that nature. Uh, they used growth hormone, which is believed to be something we want to kind of maintain our growth hormone levels as we age. But the problem with using growth hormone is that it spikes blood glucose. So they actually added DHEA sulfate and metformin, two drugs that can help, you know, 
fix uh, the increase in glucose that you see with growth hormone. And they also found approximately a two-year age rejuvenation taking growth hormone, DHA, and metformin to help regrow the thymus. So we, there's a lot of really cool stuff coming out with this. Um, interestingly enough, a relatively new study came out in 2019. Uh, what they found was these uh, CPG sites, the cytosine preceding guanine um, sites on the epigenome that they use as uh, markers. Uh, uh, basically, the, 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 these are the genes that we're seeing changed, the methylation change with age. They found that these actually match up with some of the, the cytosine modifications that change every day and oscillate in a circadian manner. So they first they found out in mice uh, that these same genes that follow circadian pattern are also the genes that are being differentially methylated with age. And they just last year in January uh, provided a proof of concept that these same modifications hold true in humans. Essentially, in a nutshell, this means that circadian rhythms are probably going to play a big role in regulating this epigenetic drift or the way that the epigenome changes with age. Uh, in other words, you know, have a good circadian rhythm, main good, uh, maintain good uh, circadian behaviors by proper exposure, exposure to zeitgeber such as light, physical activity, exercise, social uh, interactions and feeding times and maintaining adequate nutrition. So just in a nutshell, we're scratching the surface with, with this kind of uh, epigenetic clock, the epigenetic age and the DNA methylation age. This is going to provide us with some really compelling research coming up. And I, I do truthfully believe that we're going to see some pretty substantial um, age reversal in the next few years. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to be living forever, but what it does means is we're going to get a lot more mileage out of the car. Now, I would like to kind of stick around with this topic of aging to discuss a specific type of cells I've mentioned a few times called senescent cells. Now, senescent cells are interesting. Now, when we're looking at cells throughout the body, we, we kind of have two types. There are somatic cells, which are the cells that make up our intestine or they make up our kidneys. Uh, in other words, they're cells that have differentiated to serve a specific function. But we also have cells called stem cells that are replicative cells. And what that means is they can make other cells essentially. And so with these replicative cells, there's different tiers. You have uh, what you may have heard of as either multipotency or pluripotency, which means these cells can kind of differentiate into a bunch of different types of cells. And, and as they move along this path of differentiation, they kind of get locked into specific types of cells that they can make. Uh, for example, we have hematopoietic stem cells that are, are in our bone marrow, and they can form the different types of cells that, that make up our blood, including red blood cells and white blood cells. So when we look at cellular senescence, cellular senescence is sort of a program that our cells induce that causes these replicative cells to no longer be able to replicate. And, and so what that means is they stick around inside the body, but they're no longer able to make new cells. And so there are some benefits to this. I mean, obviously it's better to have a cell that sticks around that can, you know, perform some of the functions that it's supposed to 
perform, but ideally we would obviously prefer this cell to maintain whatever state of pluripotency that it has. And so what happens is as we get older, we accumulate more and more senescent cells in each and every one of our tissues. And the problem with this is that these senescent cells secrete something called the senescence-associated secretory profile. And what this does is in addition to preventing this cell from replicating, it actually impairs the function of nearby cells within that tissue. And that's obviously bad news. So what are we talking about? What is part of the SASP? Well, there are different growth factors. Um, there are proteases that kind of break up the association between these cells and you know the entire cellular matrix. And there is also a secretion of inflammatory cytokines. And so what happens is it doesn't take a lot of these cells to really impair tissue function. In fact, it only takes about one to 2% of cells in a tissue to really impair that tissue's function. So we would really like to prevent the accumulation of senescent cells. However, senescence is a really important thing for us to have. Senescence is essentially a, a cancer preventative strategy. So what happens in these cells is uh, through one mechanism or another, they're kind of tagged and identified as cells that we don't want to proliferate because in doing so, they could form cancerous cells. And there are multiple ways to get to this uh, state. For example, uh, too much DNA damage, Telomere attrition, when our telomeres on the ends of our DNA uh, shorten to the, the point uh, that uh, replicating GAN would essentially lead no more uh, telomere to protect the ends of DNA, you reach replicative senescence. And finally, another way is mitochondrial-induced senescence, which has to do with mitochondrial dysfunction. And so all three of these are referred to as senescence. However, they may not be the exact same state, but generally speaking, we see the same thing. We have a replicative cell that can no longer replicate and it can impair the tissue function. So what's really interesting about these cells is that if we can remove them, we actually get a beneficial effect within the tissue that they're removed from. We don't want to get rid of senescence. In other words, we don't want to stop cells from being able to enter senescence because we don't want to promote cancer. And additionally, senescence is something our body uses, for example, to heal wounds on our skin. So we don't want to stop senescence. What we want to do is selectively target cells that are senescent and eliminate them so that they no longer produce this senescence-associated secretory profile and impair tissue function. And in fact, there is evidence that within intestinal stem cells, uh, if we have too many senescent cells, that can uh, impair organoid function. Organoids are essentially, think of them essentially as a group of cells that form organs in the small intestine, little mini organs, that's why they're called organoids. So we do not want to accumulate these senescent cells anywhere in the body, especially in the intestine. So if we can selectively target these cells and remove them, then we can promote healthy tissue function. And in fact, there are some current therapeutics out on the market uh, that we can use to do this. For example, a lot of them are actually repurposed cancer drugs. And so the combination of dasatinib and quercetin, quercetin being uh, the supplement that many of you probably heard of, uh, this combination effectively eliminates senescent cells. Uh, probably one that I'm more kind of keen to is physotin. Physotin is a polyphenol found in strawberries, obviously not to the amount that you would need 
to you know remove senescent cells but there are supplements of fisetin and there are actually ongoing clinical trials in humans with fisetin to uh, remove senescent cells from the body it's been shown effective in mice and uh, although the study that was first attempted to kind of ascertain uh, the safety of fisetin wasn't geared towards determining if there's a positive effect. They did find that there was a positive effect. And the great thing about Fisetin is there are no risks really involved. It's considered a perfectly safe supplement. But really what's gonna be interesting in the future is to see what these drugs also refer to as senolytics, how effective they can be because the best thing about them is even if you're looking at something like say a repurposed cancer drug, you don't take this drug every day. This is something you take over the course of, for example, with Fisetin, you take it over the course of two days, and then a month later you take it for two days again, and then you don't need to take it until you accumulate more senescent cells. So there's a lot that needs to be discovered about senescence and senolytics. For example, it would be ideal if we could find a specific way of identifying, of tagging senescent cells, which is what we're currently working on. But that's really cool just understanding that, you know, you've probably heard of the old adage, one bad apple spoils the bunch. This is effectively the same thing. But what it's showing is if we can remove that bad apple, the rest of the apples go back to functioning in a perfectly healthy manner. So there, there's a ton of stuff on the horizon, tons of research into anti-aging strategies or age rejuvenation. And, you know, you know between the epigenetic aging and the senescence, uh, removing senescent cells via senolytics, there's actually a lot to look forward to in promoting healthy aging, especially for my generation. Hopefully, uh, it gets out there qu quickly enough so we can kind of prevent some of the suffering with things such as Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's that are coming for current generations. Let's switch gears a little bit and discuss skin health and gut health. Now, if you go into Dr. Google and you search skin gut health, you'll get a huge list of different articles and research papers on how gut health affects the health of your skin. And, you know, I think a lot of people buy into this that, you know, if we, if we build a healthy gut, we're also going to have healthy skin. But what most people don't realize, as with all, you know, gut, you know, whatever, gut muscle, gut brain axes, that they're, it's bi-directional communication. In other words, yes, gut health affects skin health, but skin health also affects gut health. And there are a number of different mechanisms through which this can work. I mean, for one, you know, when, when our skin is exposed to ultraviolet B radiation, it produces vitamin D. Vitamin D is really important for skin health. So, you know, you get a lot of buy-in there. But there are other factors at play as well. For example, ultraviolet A light, when it hits our skin, actually causes the release of something called carbon monoxide. Most of you have probably heard of it in terms of the toxicity of carbon monoxide, but this little bit that we make actually functions as a signaling molecule for our circadian rhythm. And interestingly, if you inhale carbon monoxide at a very, very low therapeutic level, this actually, at least in mice, this kind of stimulates the vagus nerve and causes an anti-inflammatory response. Now, interestingly enough, it's going through the same cells, whether you're breathing it in by inhaling tiny doses, you know, you know just in case, I don't think I need to say this, do not inhale carbon monoxide. The, it has been used in some human studies at very, very low levels, but you, know, you don't want to breathe in carbon monoxide. 
but you can make it. And when ultraviolet A light hits our skin, we do make it and we breathe it out. This actually may have an effect on calming down our immune system. So that's another way through which, you know, our skin health is important for our gut health. Now, I also believe that kind of what you're going to get when you expose your skin to the sun, generally what happens in addition to making vitamin D, you also make melanin, which gives you, you know, the, the color of your skin when it tans. But this melanin also acidifies the skin and it's going to completely change the way that your skin behaves. You're going to have a more acidic skin. Your skin is going to be less permeable. So it's going to essentially be a more resilient skin. But they've also done a study in mice where they looked at using something called skin taping, which is essentially meant to mimic scratching. And in mice, when you do this skin taping, essentially what you're doing is you're causing inflammation in the skin by irritating the skin. Now, of course, when you do this, you get inflammation in the area. And what's kind of interesting about this study was is that they found by tape stripping, what ends up happening is inside the skin, you make a cell signaling molecule called interleukin-33, and that goes into the blood. And when IL-33 reaches the gut, it works with other interleukins to activate these cells called innate type 2 innate lymphoid cells, and they make additional interleukins, but, but what eventually happens is you get an expansion of, in, of mast cells in the intestine, and what this does is it essentially sensitizes you to um, some sort of antigen. Kind of what they're thinking about this is you, you may be aware if you kind of expose your skin to something you're allergic to, you'll get inflammation in the skin, and this may be kind of priming your intestine to, you know, understand that you're going to come into contact with something so you get more mast cells in the gut but what you also get is is a leakier gut you get greater intestinal permeability because mast cells make histamine and other factors inflammatory markers that will increase leaky gut now it's really interesting this study again it's a mouse study so you know we can't really say for sure we know that it works the same way in humans but what they did find is in children with eczema atopic dermatitis their intestines actually harbored more mast cells than kids without eczema so it just kind of goes to show you we need to look at the body as an entire ecosystem where all these different sub ecosystems are communicating with one another and we can't just look at the gut skin axis we also have to look at the skin gut axis this is one of the reasons i make it make skin health a priority for myself i mentioned in a podcast either the last podcast or the podcast before that that i am taking collagen especially during the summer because i'm damaging the collagen in my skin and i want to make sure that i have enough of basic, you know, the basic building blocks of collagen inside my body so I can repair that. And, and I definitely do see a difference. But in addition to that, I also moisturize my skin. I also use transdermal magnesium, which can irritate the skin. But since I've kind of had this entire skincare, you know, regimen, I really, you know, used to get terrible, terrible burning from using transdermal magnesium on my skin, but now I don't even notice it's on there, to be honest with you. So, you know, in addition to maintaining good gut health for your skin, you need to main, maintain good skin health for your gut. So keep that in mind when you're looking, you know, you're, you're not really thinking, I mean, for example, exposing yourself to poison ivy may 
cause this. Exposing yourself to allergens, you know, knowingly can cause, may cause a reaction in the gut. And, and, you know, in addition, you know, while I do kind of promote healthy skin exposure to the sun, sunburns may theoretically also mess with your gut through this same mechanism. So we want to keep the skin very, very strong, very, very healthy, and we want to limit inflammation in the skin by avoiding allergens, staying out of poison ivy, regularly using moisturizer, and like I said, I use collagen as well, just to you know maintain a very strong, healthy skin barrier, which should promote a good skin microbiome, and at the end of the day, it probably does have an effect on the gut microbiome as well. And finally, I want to discuss a study that kind of caused some confusion at the beginning of 2020. The name of the study is Cones Support Alignment to an Inconsistent World by Suppressing Mouse Circadian Responses to the Blue Colors Associated with Twilight. As the lay press generally does, they kind of took this to mean something that it didn't. And you may have read something on Science Daily or one of the other popular press site, uh, science sites that essentially said that blue light at night really isn't that disruptive. And that's not what this study showed. Additionally, you had people on the other side of the aisle saying that blue light is the most important thing to setting your circadian rhythm. And that also appears not to be correct, at least based on the results of the study. What the study found was throughout our day, there is a natural transition from yellow to blue as we go from daytime to twilight. Now, a previous study found that this change didn't really have an effect on our melatonin output. Therefore, it doesn't really have an effect on our circadian rhythms, right? And that turns out to be incorrect. As it turns out, while this transition from yellow to blue doesn't affect our melatonin output, it does help set our circadian rhythms. It just doesn't do so via the specific set of cells in our eyes that kind of sense blue light and produce the output of melatonin. Just a kind of a synopsis on that. We have these cells within our eyes called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglial cells. They are not image forming cells. What they essentially kind of detect in the environment is the amount of blue light in the environment. And when there is a lot of blue light, the photopigment melanopsin is inhibited and prevents the secretion of melatonin from the pineal gland. But when we are no longer exposed to blue light, this kind of lifts this inhibition and we start making melatonin and that helps us fall asleep. Now the assumption that many make is that this is the most important thing in setting our circadian rhythm is getting this melatonin levels as high as we possibly can, which turns out not to be true Case in point from this study, what they found was this natural transition from yellow light to blue light from daytime to twilight actually does help set our circadian rhythm. It just doesn't do so from the IPRGCs. It does this through a specific set of receptors in our eyes called S cones. You may know cones as the you know, image forming cells in our eye that help us see during the daytime and they help us see color. S cones specifically refer to small wavelength cones, which means they are the ones that detect blue light. So what this study effectively showed was that we're not just taking the amount of blue light in the environment and using that to set our circadian rhythm. There's a natural transition that we see when we transition from yellow 
to blue, and that also helps set our circadian rhythm, which if you think about it makes total sense. What happens if we don't have, if we're in a completely overcast day and we're not really not getting enough light, you have to have multiple environmental factors to help set the circadian rhythm. Now, while it's important to say that this study was in mice, it's environmental information that we can detect. So theoretically speaking, it doesn't make any sense for us not to use this information. Additionally, one of the other things to kind of take home from this is that we can't just look at light and color as separate entities. We're detecting all of this information and we're pulling it in. In fact, there was a previous study that kind of looked at uh, how light affects us throughout the day. And what this study found was that while blue and uh, certain wavelengths of green light can inhibit melatonin, if we are exposed to this green light for prolonged periods of time, it stops having an effect. In other words, if I remember correctly, it's about after 90 minutes, green light really doesn't have a huge effect on melanopsin, meaning it will stop inhibiting melatonin. So this kind of gives us a clue that you know, just simply blocking blue light at night is not necessarily the best way to set your circadian rhythm. And what I probably took home from this more than anything else, and this I guess you could consider a bit of a life hack, is I wouldn't just rely on blue blocking glasses at night to help set my circadian rhythm. What I'm taking from this is if you are seeing tons of yellow light but no blue light, you may be sending cross signals to your body by saying, okay, well, there's no blue light in the environment. We can't see blue light, but we've got a ton of this yellow light that we could see, and that may have a disrupting effect on our circadian rhythm. So what I do, what should you do? What's the best thing to do? Well, first and foremost, don't just put on blue light blocking glasses and have every light on in your house. Anybody who's worn blue blocking glasses knows when you put those glasses on, you really don't see blue colors, but the yellow colors, the amber colors really come out. So what you want to do is in addition to wearing the blue locking glasses, which is what I do, I also keep the lights off in the house. I don't run around flipping the lights on and off every now and again. I just kind of leave them off. And this sends the proper signals to your eyes, which sends the proper signals to your brain. It helps set your circadian rhythm. So while many people kind of took offense to this study, I follow uh, the Brown Lab on Twitter and people were just skewering them saying, you know, people are going to take this and are going to use it in the wrong way. This is actually excellent information. This doesn't, you know, detract from the blue light evidence. It actually adds to it and indicates that, you know, yes, we do not want to expose ourselves to tons of blue light at night but we might not want to completely prevent ourselves from seeing the color blue by wearing glasses. And there are a bunch of different bulbs out on the market these days. There's LifeX and the Philips Hue where you can kind of change the color of lighting coming through the, um, through the light without dramatically impacting your ability to see blue light. So I expect more on, on this topic. Uh, I believe the Brown Lab is doing uh, further study uh, based off of my discussions with them. Seems really, really interesting the stuff that they're doing and they're just taking a deeper dive to kind of, you know, they're not trying to negate the fact that melatonin is important, but it might not be the only important signal that we need and it's important to determine this. 
That about does it for episode 13 of the Hacker Gut Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. There's some interesting stuff coming up. Just got back from vacation. That's why there was a delay in this podcast. is being published on Tuesday. I'm going to try to keep the podcasts on Thursday if I can. have some really interesting stuff. I'm going into a, uh, having come back from vacation. Uh, I've uh, kind of put on some weight and gut's not feeling all that great from consuming all the beer and overeating and not being in my routine. I was up in Vermont visiting family and, you know, I really entered it going very well. We had to quarantine for 14 days prior to going up there. And so uh, I entered it, I entered Vermont feeling very good and uh, came back feeling beat up and pounded. Uh, My heart rate variability crashed. My resting heart rate kind of elevated quite a bit, about eight or nine points. So the next four weeks I'm going to be spending kind of cracking down, performing a lot of self-care, doing some interesting things. I'll, I'll cover that in the next podcast. Additionally, I have something really interesting coming up. Uh, one of the things I noticed when I was in Vermont was how they've essentially crushed COVID-19. Uh, the, their, their numbers are great. Uh, their economy is humming along very well. And I've just noticed a completely different mindset with regard to the um, virus up there, both in, in the individuals who are up there. And don't get me wrong, there are people who just don't care about it and, and don't think it means anything. But the way that their public health officials are, are handling this is very amazing. I mean, they're knocking it out of the park. I'll discuss that a little bit. And then in Hack Your Gut, you know, podcast 15, I hope to interview this, you know, very interesting woman who she, she actually had COVID-19 and she's one of these people, they say that's about 20% of the people who get it that just get these lingering symptoms. Some people, uh, actually I have a cousin who's going through it currently. She's well past three months, I believe. Some people, you know, for the first month or two, they, they end up getting, you know, pulmonary s- symptoms, you know, their lungs are all messed up. They get better. They think they're better. They're on the men. And then all of a sudden their blood just starts clotting and they get all these sort of, uh, you know, heart rhythm abnormalities and things of that nature. And then you got other people who are experiencing what is essentially chronic fatigue syndrome. They're getting brain fog. They are exhausted. I was listening to a Peter Atia podcast and, you know, he, you know, he has some pretty high achieving friends who, you know, are big into aerobic exercise. And he was mentioning that these people, you know, after they got this, you know, they're barely able to, you know, they've quote unquote recovered, but you know, they, they can't even break a, a nine minute mile. So I want to discuss this with her. Uh, she's actually gathering data through Facebook and, you know, I kind of came upon this because my cousin is going through this experience and she shared the group uh, with me through her page. And then I just kind of got to looking. It was pretty amazing. Uh, Currently, the group is around 50,000. Well, actually, when I started, it was 50,000 people. And it's actually gone up to 75 since then, which is only like 10 10 or 11 days. But it's just kind of astonishing to me. Most of these people are either younger than me or right around my age. And, you know, you look at them, you're like, I would have never guessed that this could have done something like this to them to where, you know, three, four, five months later, they're just, you know, exhausted. So I want to talk to her, talk about the data she's gathering, her personal experience with COVID-19 and just kind of clue people into the, uh, you know, there's a dichotomy out there that people think you either get this and two weeks later, you're perfectly fine or four weeks later, you're dead. And uh, there's a substantial middle ground. And in this middle ground are people who are just getting 
beat down by this virus. So we'll talk about that. Again, that'll probably be episode 15. Uh, Episode 14 is going to be kind of what I'm doing with myself moving forward. So thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoy your week. Have a good day.